This is the Circulate Podcast, broadcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. I'm more worried about it, people saying, oh, that's just recycling up to bit, or that's just waste management. The circular economy has been defined by many people as recycling 2.0, or as Ken Webster said in that quote there, as waste management. But that's not how we see things at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. For us, the circular economy is a framework for thinking about how the economy operates, a systems approach which facilitates effective flows of materials, of information, of energy. Ken Webster, head of innovation at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and author of Wealth of Flows, is keen to stress that this is a great time to embrace a circular economy because we now have the technology that allows us to better understand complex systems and which also unlocks new business models. Doesn't it mean that we can look at models of how we do things that were okay, they were there before, but now we can really make them sing. Of course, there's always been the idea of, yeah, you can rent a car, but now this super convenient way of doing it, that these cars are parked around the city, you know where they are, you've got your little pass card and you can then use it immediately. This podcast episode is a real cracker. We will be discussing the circular economy over the next 40 minutes or so. Among the discussion points, why is a circular economy gaining traction now? What role does digital play in this transformation? What does it mean for society? And how might we educate for a new type of economy? You'll hear from Ken Webster throughout, but also from Ella Yamzan, research manager at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Here's Ella talking about machine learning and how that can help us make better use of materials. One of the challenges with materials is that there are so many different types of, of different materials. They have different properties, uh, different benefits in different cases, different ability to be, to be reused or recycled and, and using um, the, the more recent data analysis approaches from um, machine learning and, and, and big data. You, you can much more effectively make sense of all that information. Ella and Ken are interviewed in this piece by Joss Blerio, the executive officer at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Joss starts by referencing how the language and the understanding of the circular economy is beginning to shift. This interview was originally recorded as part of the Disruptive Innovation Festival. You can find out more at thinkdiff.co. Maybe first of all, before I jump into the first question, a quick reflection. There was this week an event put together by the German Ministry of the Environment, who happened to be the people who put circular economy at the heart of the uh, new mandate for the G7 Resource Alliance uh, program. And that event was quite interesting in the sense that the debate has evolved quite a bit. A lot of people were really focusing on the upstream part of what the circular economy is. So we've moved away from that waste management oriented rhetoric to something which is much more upstream, looking at design. And the, the German minister herself, Barbara Hendricks, was insisting on the, uh, the importance of design in the circular economy strategy. So can maybe a quick reflection on that? How do you see the uh, conversation evolving and how do you see the role of the framing that you're a very big advocate of in that progress? 
In a way, this is why we needed uh, a description such as circular economy, because economy is a serious word. Circular describes a different way of doing it. And rather than just thinking, as, as you've mentioned, we're just going to pick up some of the waste streams and uh, push them back, inherent in it is designing to, to increase possible revenues, business opportunities, uh, different access to, to resources and ideas. And that is talking about the economy as a whole. It's not just a waste management uh, prescription. It's a way of thinking about the economy particularly shifting from selling goods to selling services to selling access rather than ownership. All of these have got impacts on resources, but they're much more intentional in a circular economy than they would be in a sort of an economy plus recycling or an economy plus waste management. So it is a much more profound um, approach. And now reflecting on that progress, because we've been working on these concepts and trying to elaborate on them in an understandable way, yet not dumbing them down. Mm. Uh, what do you think, Ella, has been the most useful thing and what can be made even better in the communications around this idea? Because it's a complex idea. Let's not mm. shy away from it. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the bit you mentioned earlier, the fact that people are looking more at it upstream is really, is really key. And it's also um, linking this upstream, this design phase thinking with the part about uh, the end of pipe and, and how we recover them. So, so where it used to be that a lot of thinking was at, at the end of the, of the supply chain, what do we do with, with the waste? The fact that we have this design really helps creating this feedback between those two things that really need to be thought about in parallel. Um, um, but then in, indeed, then, then beyond that, because that's still all, all more of a material focus thinking, then, um, then looking at circular economy as a, whole, um, as a whole way of thinking about the economy and, and not just the flows of materials um, is what takes it uh, one step further. And that's where um, it easily can, can appear a bit, a bit complex, uh, but we need to continue to embrace, um, embrace a, certain aspect, a certain level of complexity, um, keeping, keeping the, the communication as simple as possible with, with, um, with simple language, but then keeping into it all the, the wealth of all these different aspects. Another way of doing that might be, well not another way, but a way of describing that is to say an economy is full of information, materials and energy flows. It's what Kenneth Boulding described an economy as. And in a way, we, everybody's familiar with the energy problem and that shift towards renewables. And in fact, I think that transition's underway. I don't know if you'd agree. Materials is, our, is a f common focus, but it's beyond that and energy. It's also into information flows. And information seems to be the key to unlocking these nice new business models, these new opportunities, these, uh, these opportunities to, if you like, rework economic relationships in a, in a very positive way. So we might be working through three sorts of flows uh, successively yeah. in describing an, an economy, which is, after all, what we're after is to describe the economy as a whole. But what's interesting is that even if you took one of those flows as a starting yeah. point, like materials, you unavoidably start having to consider the other yeah, flows as well. Absolutely. So you look at materials and you want to look at feedback, you start thinking in terms of information. Right, yeah. And you look at materials, you look at, at costs, so you, look at, you start looking at the economy. So, 
So materials can be a good, a good sometimes focal point because yeah, it helps it's a good people lens which a good lens to, to, to think about it. And then these other aspects unavoidably become necessary and, and, and part of the same conversation. Yeah, but, you know, I just want to add that on the top of that, there's that key thing about circularity. You know, that just describes a way of it's closing the loops. It's getting feedback in the system. And that's just that contrast with the economy we have at the moment, which is so much throughput and degrading mm. capitals, if you like, or converting them into financial capital. So there's the idea that we might have flows which have a, an effective relationship between the stock and the flow and the fact that these continually circulate. And I think that's one of the key ideas that, that gives it resonance is the idea that most of the real world systems we see are full of feedback and why shouldn't our economy mirror that uh, mm. and mirror it in a way which makes it work long term. Mm. So, well, I'd like to pick up on something you said, Ken, if you say the transition to renewables is happening right now and a lot of experts have actually labeled it irreversible. Mm -hmm. So if you look yeah. at the volumes of investment and where they go, it seems like there's a tipping point almost being reached. So you don't necessarily see it on a day-to-day basis, but it's underway and it can't be stopped. Yeah. Arguably, the linear economy, the Industrial Revolution was a revolution of energy. It's mm. the access to that energy which gave us access to the materials as we know it. So would you say that to a certain extent that revolution in the energy systems is the first tipping point of a wider systemic shift? Well, we really hope so, because <laughs> if we don't, we have a real problem because almost all industrial systems, well, all of them, depend upon a secure and uh, usable flow of energy. And this is where we create a lot of the surplus. You've got to have the energy equation right in some way. But the clever thing, I think, about the changes we're seeing at the moment, with the, particularly in the digital area, is that we can lower this threshold of energy that's required to run the system if we work at it. We've seen lots of changes in the automobile section moving towards not only autonomous cars, electric vehicles, but also connecting, uh, ride-sharing, peer-to-peer, all of these things can, according to reports from, say, the IMF or even Barclays Bank this last week, really cut down the demand for vehicles over time so that you get much more of your economy serviced with much fewer objects that require a lot of energy to make it work. So I think we can, it's not just substituting. Some people think it's always just you've got to substitute renewables for uh, other forms of energy and that's the only thing to talk about. But there's also this idea of how much uh, different machines, different operations use. And if we can deliver more services and less goods and we can meet people's needs more in that way, this is, this is all going to add into this um, transition. It's also interesting to see that the, the simple framing of the question actually kind of skews the debate because if you take the premise that the transition to renewables is going to meet, need to meet the same needs that we have today in a linear system, then of course you're setting it up to fail, right? But uh, it is something that's been very prevalent, I think, in the, uh, in the overall debate. It's that question of this is what we have at the moment. How many windmills do we need to put to get to that level? But it's hardly the point, is it, Ella? Mm, yeah, and I mean, I, I'm just thinking, like the, the way energy might have triggered, a change of energy triggered the Industrial Revolution. Um, isn't it more the way digital might be triggering this new revolution? Because it's the way digital helps um, 
because we might have a, a change in energy, but it's it seems to me that it's it's less profound than 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 the change in energy we had for the the industrial revolution. But but the digital revolution, on the other hand, is making us able to um, to really make sense of, of all these different uh, flows. You know, we've been talking about and and seeing this complexity and seeing it as something as something positive and and that we can. Um, and that we can really, that we can learn from and that we can benefit from. Um, so... But uh, doesn't it really just, you know, to add to that, doesn't it mean that we can look at models of how we do things that were, okay, they were yeah, there before, exactly. but now we can really make them sing. Of course, there's always been the idea of, yeah, you can rent a car, but now this super convenient way of doing it, that these cars are parked around the city, you know where they are, you've got your little pass card and you can then use it immediately. Or the peer-to-peer -peer car rental business is booming so that everybody's cars also become a source of transport for other people. It's That's the, the way it's revolutionizing, yeah. isn't it? The, the resources question. And that's because digital, or, or so, especially some of the, not just digital, but some of the recent ways we have to deal with, with, with data are making that you can deal with user data, for example. And all this user data makes can make things really convenient that weren't convenient before. Um, but then they also help, we've, we've seen cases where these types of technologies help you make decisions. Um, for example, one of the challenges with materials is that there are so many different types of, of different materials. They have different properties, uh, different benefits in different cases, different ability to be, to be reused or recycled and, and using um, the the more recent data analysis approaches from um, machine learning and, and and big data, you you can much more effectively make sense of all that information, um, and that means that you don't have to necessarily um, dumb the system down, make it simple, which is which is pretty much what a linear economy is. It's a simplified version of of what the economy really is. Um, you can actually you can actually take into account all these feedbacks and, and try to make make the most out of them because you don't have to make all the calculation yourself. Yeah, just look at say manufacturing because this used to be what well, still is based upon scale and selling. In order to get cost down, you had to make huge numbers of the things, and then you've got to make sure that they don't last particularly long because the linear economy is very very efficient. <laughs> Very efficient, unlike that mug, which is going to be re reprocessed. Uh, it's very efficient, but making things in very large scale means you've got to market the heck out of it. You've got to try and make it uh, last not too long because you want to sell it and you want to sell it again. You've got this, you don't want to see the product back again because that ruins your efficient production process. You've got to plan for 20 or 30 years because you're building a great big factory. It just goes on and on. But now that we've got more intelligent systems, you can produce at a much smaller scale if you wanted. And perhaps, okay, the variable costs are somewhat higher, the cost for each unit. But if you put them into the system as products of service, you can work with that idea that it's a, a product that's providing you a service. Or you can track where it is and how it's performing so it, you can get much more utility out of it. Mm -hmm. So you can defeat scale and selling to some extent in some markets because you've got information-rich mm. systems and different forms of manufacturing too. So you can make things in a small batch at a pretty reasonable price mm. now. Well, that's because you shift also the way uh, the value creation system is not so much 
defeat one is bring one which is more effective, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, you're not defeating it, but you're defeating the idea that you have to do it that way. Yeah. I should have said it that way. You defeat the idea that you can only do it with scale and selling. Now that those options are coming up, you can do it another way and still meet customer demands. And actually, the other thing about it is the ability to make things much more decentralized. That's an, another thing that digital brings, is you don't necessarily need to, to, to sort it out at the outset. No. You, can, you, can let, um, you can let different communities or people or users uh, participate into this. Um, and, and that links with different ways of making of making yeah. things, but it's also because you can share that that information. You can you can have things being uh, adapted to the needs of, of different communities. So it can and that can be much more effective. I mean, there is there is a, a, a value aspect which is that maybe we want these things to 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 include lots of, of different uh, scales of uh, organizations, but also also just purely from an effectiveness perspective, it can create something that's much more uh, resilient and much more um, able to, to deal with issues if if you have many scales of, of involvement and organizations. Yeah, there was in a it. story about, we had some flooding in Thailand a few years ago, really serious flooding. And there was one factory that got wiped out with this, and that was making a key component for some pharmaceuticals and those pharmaceuticals disappeared after the stocks ran down off the shelves all over the world for nine months because that one factory had been disabled so the idea that you've got a distributed production system potentially that you can customize what you make and you can be much more flexible is a great boon in a, an era which is characterized by uncertainty so you get a, a triple win in a way you get you de-risk the organization the, the, the supply chains you get potential to produce in new ways at different scales, and you, you do great things about resources in a sense because you're not shipping all of those components that distance that you were doing before, you're mm. shipping the design. So it's a really exciting bundle of opportunities. It doesn't get rid of the problems that we need a great deal of energy. That's still in transition, but mm. I think it does paint a, a different sort of picture that design-led circular economy is, is the aspiration. This interview was originally recorded as part of the Disruptive Innovation Festival. You can find out more at thinkdiff.co. So, to recap, Ken, Ella and Joss have described the circular economy as one characterised by flows of resources, one which utilises digital for, for many effects, one of which could be to facilitate a shift to a more decentralised approach to production. The current system, characterised by the phrase take, make, dispose, may still have some efficiency gains to shout about, but our guests are quietly confident the transition to a circular economy is underway. All of which begs the question, why don't we have an agreed definition of circular economy? Uh, Ken, trick one for you. I decided it was for you actually. Uh, from social media, is there one definitive definition of the circular economy? No, thank goodness there isn't. I hadn't finished. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the person also wants to know, would that be needed? Would it be needed? No, it isn't needed and it, thank goodness there isn't one because I think it, it describes a, a direction of travel. What we're trying to do is make the most of closing the loops making those connections, making those effective flows, 
And so the more you try and define it, the more you begin to, if you lose its, its character in a sense, you, you get it fossilized. It's a, it's a growing idea. It's a bit like saying democracy, what's that? And people it's have got... a good question at the moment. It's, <laughs> it's a very good question. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people really l get behind the idea of democracy, but know in practice that it's variably interpreted. But it's still a sense of their aspiration. We, you know, the cure for, uh, for many things is more democracy, they, they would probably say. And as different aspects of the circular economy uh, expand and grow, it becomes more and more a general guiding idea. How do we make this more circular? How do we get feedback in this system which would improve its effectiveness? So I'm very comfortable with it being broad-based. I'm more worried about it, people saying, oh, that's just recycling up to bit, or that's just waste management. Okay, so let's put it another way. There might not be a need for a definitive definition of it, but could... Um simplistic definitions of it put it on the wrong track. That is more danger, yes. Because people are always thinking there in a habitual way. They say, circular economy, what's that like? Well, I know about recycling, for instance, or I know about waste. Oh, it must be that. And then the thinking stops. Mm. Whereas we're trying to, uh, if you like, open up the discussion about what, what it can mean. And we're using this... Uh, this development that we've had in society around, particularly around digital, and about information flows and how systems work, really work, to take the discussion in, a, in that direction towards a more broader sense of what a circular economy means. There's always a risk when you have a definition that, even when you tell yourself it's an evolving definition, it still constrains you a little bit to, um, to where, to where where you are so so I guess the, the fact that they are there are there are definitions out there the fact that they, they all have different uh, focus is is probably uh, valuable it is valuable until the point where it becomes anything you want it yeah. to be and then that is and that's ridiculous and that's just yeah. like that's just painting a wall in a way it's sort of I'll just make this well the color of the year is orange or something I'll just call everything orange because that's what's in fashion this year. So it has to have some, some honesty with it. And, it, and, it, and it, for me, it relates most to feedback-rich systems, I suppose, if you put it in an abstract way. But it's, it's about closing the loop and designing a system that would work. You know, that's that intentional aspect of it. OK, let's move from the uh, theory to practice, then. What are the best examples of circular economy going on now is what the audience wants to know. One of my favorite ones, I suppose I'm a big fan of regenerative agriculture because it links back to the past. This was, you know, we've, we've always had farms that would work by retaining the nutrients that were generated on the farm or enriching the soil. But people like Leontino Balbo can say that if we do this in a, a more up-to-date and intelligent way, we can work at scale. We can work at scale with this. It doesn't have to be a little backyard thing. It doesn't have to be somebody's little obsession, it can work at a great scale. So we can improve the quality of soil, get more output, improve those um, ecological services which soil and uh, land provides. You know, you can have it all with the right design. And this is, this is the, the clever thing about it. It's not saying, oh, you need a whole lot of new technologies, but if you think d differently about uh, what you've got, you can get that. And 
spinning off from that, let's just I'll pick up on Ecovative as one of my favorite firms that's, that's in that area because you, they grow packaging, which is fantastic. They use agricultural waste, use um, you know, mycelial nets, fungus, if you like, to create a, a material that's great for packaging and it's, and it's no problem at all when it's finished being used. It can go back to the soil. And, and perhaps the third one, just to do in a sort of series, Biomason is a new startup which is creating bricks by using bacteria to lock the particles of sand and grit together. They don't use furnaces and cook it at, at high temperatures. They use the activity of bacteria to, to create the solidity of the brick, which is, that's what I enjoy most about it, is this, uh, let's just rethink the problem we've got here. Mm. We don't have to hit it with a load of temperature and uh, complicated, ma complex materials. You could rethink what you've got there and get a great outcome. Mm. Uh, some, uh, I think some of the, w the ones that I find most um, in inspiring often are sometimes, I think there are interesting things happening in the built environment. Um, and there's, for example, I found, I found quite interesting the case of what a company called Biopolis has been doing because they've been developing um, they have a technology for, for uh, wastewater uh, treatment, um, but that they've set up um, in, in, um, in, a, in a building or in an infrastructure that actually is also really nice and that you can fit in a city and it's moving away so their, their wastewater treatment is, is uh, innovative, but also the fact that they've added the fact of making something that you want to have in a city that's, that is linked with um, um, a natural environment which, which is nice to walk in. And, and so it's really re reinforcing this idea of um, it's not just doing less bad, it's, it's about adding something of, of value that has multiple sources of value. It's not just, doing, it's not just sorting the problem of, of wastewater, it's, it's really adding multiple benefits. And then, and then the same technology also leads to um, um, uh, sp specific uh, solutions uh, for slums, uh, for example, where you have uh, modular modular buildings. Uh, so you can put something that depends on how much infrastructure you can add at a certain point and add additional modules. And, and there again, in addition to, to solving wastewater, it also provides some services that are currently not available in slums. So, so that's an interesting one because it's, it takes the systemic perspective of bringing all these elements together. Um, and, and, and so that's one that I found quite interesting to, to explore. A couple of key words in a way might be multiple benefits and multiple revenue streams. You know, you don't do something, you do something which spins off all of these additional potential cash flows or potential additional benefits. Because if waste is food in this sort of description, everything you do should be able to feed, if you like, other businesses, organizations, or the city or beyond. And I think that's the really exciting thing for younger people who are interested in design. It's designing to fit a system instead of designing on a very narrow criteria, perhaps. What does the customer want? Well, yeah, we can meet what the customer wants, but what does it do for this and this and this? Well, actually, what the customer wants is also uh, dependent on the system conditions because it, it's always that long debate of do you need to engage civil society, consumers, users, and do they need to know they're contributing to the circular stuff by buying something which would be labeled circular or not? It's a really big mm -hmm. question, but actually 
it's also interesting to see that there's a realization now, and it's only now, it's only recent, that all the efforts made in, in the past, let's say, 20, 25 years saying to people, you know, you can fix this, you can do the right thing, it's absolutely failing and counterproductive because people realize that actually they can't because you can only play with what you've been dealt. Mm. And that kind of puts people off. So that systemic view is really important. And picking up on your point about designers, it's not so much about designing one thing and keeping your head down. And it's also being able to take a step back and say, how does that fit that yeah. system? What does it do for the rest? Which begs an important question, actually. How do you educate a generation to think like that? Well, there's a tricky one, because it's a big one. George Lakoff, and I was just reading about him just lately, says that you have to have a, a systemic, an understanding of indirect causes. You have to know how things happen, that they don't happen just directly, you know, A to B, but the whole system operating can affect what you get. For instance, a a tornado in uh, the Pacific could lead through the various connections to, to snowfall in New York in, in the wintertime. That, that we have to understand how indirect causation works. And he says that's very, it's really quite difficult and we have to deliberately learn it. So we have to move beyond just direct causation. This is a problem and this is the fix, as though you, you had a very limited system, to understanding indirect causation, systemic causation. And if you like, it's part of systems thinking, but we don't practice it much. And he says, this has to be learned. There isn't even a language for it in, 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 in any language, he says, uh, a very simple way of doing it. You have to look at examples and learn from, from that. And um, that's one of perhaps the biggest challenges that we don't naturally think in systems. We okay, tend to think directly. A lot of uh, talks in various universities around the world for the past few years. Do you see there's a progress when it comes to the understanding? Do people know how to tackle this, even though it's really complex? I haven't said complicated, I've said complex. complex. Yeah. Uh, how to turn that into something that can be passed on to the younger generations? Again, in a way, you're back to the information revolution because the information revolution allows us to model complex systems, to show the patterns that develop that it's not chaos, that there is order, it's ordered complexity, and to be able to reveal that to people. Because once they can see it in a way, they begin to understand it as a mode of thinking. So, oddly, the digital thread, it runs through completely uh, all of this discussion. Because digital allowed us to see a complex world or make it visible, and it's now enabling us to do something in that world. And it's helping to teach us that you're not looking for a solution or cause, you're looking at the way things interact, it's interactions and their consequences that we're trying to encourage people to understand and work with exactly what Facebook or Google or any of those people do. They use masses of data, masses of interactions and look for the patterns. They're not looking for an answer, but they're using the information flows they've got to determine directions and approaches and to make it fit for different people in different circumstances. I, I mean, I wanted to say that I think um, there is there is a, a point in helping the younger generation um, really be able to to make sense of design of, of system thinking and, and the way system the dynamics of systems. Um, but I think it's I think they also 
more and more aware of it, or maybe not aware, but I think it's more and more what they expect of how the world works. And, and I think that the, the, the fact that we have digital means of communication are making people experience um, complex dynamics more than they used to. For example, um, the way, you know, if you're on Twitter, you, you, we, we know that um, one comment at some point can be completely missed out and another day the same comment could, um, could lead to becoming uh, a, new, um, a new trend on, on Twitter and that these things are really hard to predict and that you can have these, these um, reinforcing effects that make that at some point you know, it, it can be dramatic sometimes. You can, you can receive um, uh, thousands or, or of, of, of letters of people hating you because of one comment you made and it's really hard to predict. Uh, how these things evolve. So I think it's increasingly in how people experience the world now to have this the, this complexity. Um, and, and I think we probably need to help providing the, the language to be able to make sense of it, to be able to see that, that the way this happens also happens in other systems, that the way something like the way a, a coral reef at some point can get destroyed also follows a, a similar dynamic where when you thought everything was staying the same, suddenly things uh, get destroyed very quickly um, in ways that are really hard to predict at, at what point you're going to get there. These, these tipping points are, are typical not just on, on the internet, but also uh, at other levels. But, uh, but I think it's becoming more and more the way people think, and which is only making it more and more important that our education reflects this um, because um, because currently our education is, is very much following a much more uh, simplified um, uh, siloed approach that, that I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is really a wild guess, but I think that the, the younger generation now increasingly sensitive to the fact that that's not how the world around them actually works. Maybe um, because they're so exposed to the uh, digital technology and transparency as well that even if you're not consciously thinking about it in those terms you experience and that's the way your sensory system develops mm -hmm. but there's a there's a question of timeline as well here because it will take a while for the circular economy to actually get to scale there's mm -hmm. a question of scale here uh, there's a question uh, around customers wanting convenience and I take it that's both the I, I want this in that color and I want it now type of thing education system is going to take a while to, to change as well. So is there a need to manage expectations as well? Because there is a risk that because it's not working right now, people are going to shoot it down or, or is it more subtle than that? If you've got a trend which is a convergence of a number of technologies and opportunities, it tends to get a life of its own. So you might point to, say, a number of companies or organizations that we perhaps encountered even a few years ago might be finished. It might be flat in the mud, they finished. But that doesn't matter in a sense because that's what happens in every revolution. It's some of the pioneers fall over. I think what the expectations they need to manage is that once you've decided something, everything will work out as you intended. Can you imagine in the Industrial Revolution, they're sitting around in their nice uh, and Georgian type houses or whatever saying, can you show to me that this little effort you're doing with a blast furnace will guarantee me this return on my capital? And he's going to go, nobody's really done it, so let's give it a go. 
And I think that's what we're facing with now, is that people can see that there's something exciting there and they're experimenting with it. And I think that's all to the good. So I'm not personally worried that some things don't work just now or might work later. Look at the original bicycle sharing, you know, back in the 70s, you left bikes around in Copenhagen and they disappear, right? Now this bike sharing thing idea is all over 300, 400 cities in the world because IT, tracking things, paying for things, it's all been worked out. So a good idea has matured and become a feasible idea. So I think we're going to see lots of that. And, and with the digital revolution, I don't see how a move in that direction can be avoided, you know, in a sense that there's a trajectory in play. Working out the details is the fun bit. But it does raise a few questions as well, because left to its own devices, it could go either way, really. Mm. Yeah, I guess because when, when you say the with the digital revolution we're already on the path, it could also be a path towards something that is uh, that is that is less beneficial. So so I think there is a, a path that's moving, and we and in a sense our, our job is to is to frame it towards towards something that is really effective and 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 with with value that is that is across that is very inclusive as well but there is another path that could happen where digital is reinforcing some of the some of the issues yeah, that issue that we have that, today yeah. Yeah. so that but that's always what we face in yeah. society at every juncture it's how do we use these tools for good or if you like or to or to reinforce existing inequalities for example mm. and um and that's why being aware and educated and involved and participating in the changes is so important. Mm. But I think also sometimes maybe it seems like there are so many things that need to change before we have, you know, something that we can call, um, before we can say, you know, we live in something that is um, predominantly a circular economy. But we don't necessarily need to have solved all these things before we get there the way the way the industrial revolution took place, uh, it didn't require everyone being involved in an industrial right. revolution. At some point, you have you have a change that's that's happening, and you get to to this accelerated um, change that that um, that naturally tends to bring everything back into it, um, and and so that's that's kind of maybe the more um, optimistic view on this is is. Even though we don't see it now, this is something that could happen very quickly at some point. Yeah, and was it Victor Hugo who said there's nothing more powerful than an, an idea whose time has come? And uh, he's a Frenchman, I think he was. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, does that have a, a, an impact on the, uh, on the pertinence of his quote? No, it doesn't, <laughs> but it's quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose there is a really different context as well. Uh, digital revolution means that everybody knows what's happening. At the time of the Industrial Revolutions, the people who were involved in it had no clue, and nobody around them, probably outside of a one-mile radius, knew anything about it either. So that gives potential for the idea to develop much quicker. Mm. That also gives the potential for whoever would be for X reasons against that idea to shoot it down quickly. And that's, that's at the heart of the question of what do we do with all that transparency and global dialogue as well. And isn't it a question of education in the first place? Anything that changes the relationships between people, resources and each other is going to be subject to 
exploitation of different sorts. Now, the, the, the overarching thing that we've got to try and make or ensure that is that it does, as, as, as Alice says, it is inclusive, it does create abundance, not scarcity, and it also regenerates and restores capital. These are deliberate choices in the human, because it's, an economy is a constructed thing. It's made up by us through our imagination. So we've got to imagine the good things and then move towards them and then protect that. That's, that's why talk about enduring ideas, democracy has endured so long because it's a key to, to all of those things. Ken Webster, Ella Jamzan and Joss Blerio of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation were discussing our favourite topic, the circular economy. If you're new to the circular economy, then head to ellenmacarthurfoundation.org to find out more about it and more about the work that we do. Circulate is the source for the latest news and insight on the circular economy. Find out more at circulatenews.org. Thank you, Sarah. Circulate is indeed the place for news, and it's also the place for more of these podcasts. This particular one is number three in the series. Episode one looked at how cities build resilience, while episode two featured Google and asked what their interest is in a circular economy. Next time on the Circulate podcast. Opportunity with regional economies is the storytelling, is the human connection, is allowing people to see taste and touch what circular actually means because they can see every step of the supply chain happening a hundred or so miles from their home. And when they understand that, when people understand that, we can make better governance decisions about how to put the kind of innovation ecosystem in place that allows this stuff to happen. It's not about technology and digital versus people. It's about our innovation follows our values. Values, community, meaning. Nikki Silvestri tells us in the next podcast that a new economy needs to embrace all of these factors. Keep your eye on Circulate News to find out when the next podcast is out or look for it wherever you usually find your podcasts. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.